Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to uh, Matthew chapter 13. And as, as has been said, we, we had a great time at the camp out. And so when these things come around, uh, if you're at all able to make it, um, just valuable times for guys uh, to get to hang out uh, with one another and conversations around the campfire and uh, all of those things. So just encourage uh, you all, whenever you know men's things or women's things come up or church-wide things, um, come and be part of it um, because it's just a great time to get to know one another uh, a little bit better uh, and deeper than uh, we would on a Sunday morning. Um, this is the thing that the most people come to, but it's also, you know, we're, we're limited in our time here and limited in what we can do. And so just encourage you to participate in, in the other things as well as they come around. Matthew 13, we are getting into uh, the parable section of Matthew. And so we're going to kind of rapid fire in the coming weeks, look at um, some different parables. And last week, uh, Pastor Brent looked at the parable of the sower. And particularly in this section of Matthew, we're, we're jumping around a little bit because uh, the parable of the sower, verses 1 to 9, and then Matthew jumps down to verse 18 to explain the parable. And then sandwiched in between is this section that we're going to look at today, starting in verse 10, called the purpose uh, of the parables. Um, Jesus' disciples ask him a question, and I think kind of a fair question, why do you speak to people in parables? Right, And so the parable last week, Jesus talked about different kinds of seed uh, that get scattered. And depending on where the seed lands, uh, the seed grows, doesn't grow, grows shallow roots and, and withers away. Um, and, and he was trying to make a point that the word is the seed. And as the word gets scattered, uh, people respond to the word of God in different ways. Um, and of the four different kinds of responses, one of them is, is a true and legitimate response to hearing the word, receiving the word, um, taking it in uh, to your life, coming to Christ and, and living out uh, the word of God. And the other responses are less than that. And so just on the heels of that, Jesus' disciples ask him again this question, uh, why do you speak to them in parables? And again, I think it's kind of a fair question. I, I'm, I'm kind of an analytical person. I might ask that question like, Jesus, why can't you speak more plainly uh, so people can track uh, with what you're saying? And so they ask him this question. And that kind of begs another question that, that is assumed here, but that we have to ask. We have to ask the question, well, what is a parable? Right? If, we, if we're going to answer the question, why does Jesus speak in parables? We have to ask the question to us, what is uh, a parable? And according to uh, R.C. Sproul, he says this about parables. He says, the very word parable comes from two Greek words, para, which is a prefix, and it refers to something coming alongside something else. For instance, paralegals work alongside lawyers as helpers. The second word is balo, which means to throw out or to hurl. So the word parable in the Greek means something that is thrown alongside of something else. In order to illustrate a truth that Jesus is teaching, he throws a parable alongside of it. So hopefully that gives us a little bit of a sense of what a parable is. It's, it's a, a, a story, not, not an allegory, but a story that's meant to bring a truth to light. And oftentimes in the parables, there's kind of one point that's being driven home with the parable. Not, not always, but generally uh, it's driving towards kind of one truth. 
We don't look at parables as allegories. An allegory, you might look at every aspect of a story and think that every little aspect means something. Right? That, that's an allegory. Parables, again, they're driving typically just towards one main point or one main truth that Jesus is trying to get across. So as we understand what a parable is, a story that's thrown alongside a teaching in order to bring out a truth, now we can begin to ask the question uh, or answer the question that the disciples ask in verse 10 uh, when they ask Jesus why he speaks to them and to the people in parables. And in verse 11, Jesus answers them. says, He answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For no one who has, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And so we see just right out of the gate in Jesus answering this question, and it's kind of come up already this morning in our sharing time, we, we see God's electing love. We see God's predestining love here because he tells us that it's for some to know and understand and for some to not be able to know and understand. And that's a little bit of a harsh pill for us to swallow, and we're not going to unpack this fully today because it's not the main point of our text. Uh, Another conversation uh, for another day. But Jesus himself says to you, meaning to his disciples, immediately who he was speaking to in the context, to them, to the twelve, it's been given to them to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, and we don't know who the them is, but the crowds, right, the people, but to them it has not been given. And, and so we see our Bible challenge us immediately in this text with that it's given to some and not given to others, Right? And so as Jesus is answering this question, I can't imagine what the reaction of his disciples might have been in this moment. We're not privy to their reaction. If I were there, I, I, even reading this now, like I have a lot of questions that I want to ask about this. I would imagine his disciples would have had many questions. But I think about, as, as I'm thinking about, just, just the simple truth that, that is confronted here in Scripture that he's given some to know and some to not know. Um, I'm drawn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. And I just want to read it. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself, as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to Him things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, 
so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory in Him. You also, when you heard the word of the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And again, it's not we, we don't have time today to fully unpack all of what we just read, but, but we see in here uh, multiple times the word predestined. Right? We see that, that God has chosen. We see language that says, according to the purpose of his will. Right? That, that God made a choice before the foundations of the earth. God's not winging this and making it up as he goes. Before the foundation of the earth, according to his will, to the praise of his glory, he predestined some for adoption. He predestined some for inheritance. And just at the simple reading of... of these verses, these 11 verses, it makes a big deal about God. And all of this is to the praise of His glory. This isn't, you know, we, we tend to think about, uh, you know, we throw out the terms predestination or election, and we tend to think, well, how, how could God choose some and not others? And we, we go negative with it. As if God owes us, yeah. Right? Your starting point in this conversation matters, right? Your, your presupposition matters. And if your presupposition is that, that humanity is basically good and that God owes us, well, sure, then, then we can kind of be mad at God or question, you know, like, why would you do that? Why would you choose some and not others? But, but the Bible gives us a starting point, builds our presupposition for us that, that humanity is not good. We're not good. We're, we're an evil, adulterous, wicked generation. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1 that we invent evil. That's a scathing indictment, and that, that's our starting point. And if that's our starting point, the way the dominoes fall is that God doesn't owe us anything. God owes us judgment, right? If, so your starting point in thinking about this matters. And, and if we are evil and wicked and an adulterous generation, as the Bible paints us to be, that God would save anybody is to the praise of His glory and grace. That God would look at any of us, as we've talked to, that God would look at Jacob. Jacob, of all of the people in the Bible, Jacob, you said snake of a man, I've referred to him over the years as just a scuzzball. That there's nothing redeemable about this guy until God redeems him. He's a conniver, he's a swindler, clawing his way through life, taking things that don't belong to him, and do you know how God identifies himself in the Old Testament? God identifies himself as the God of Abraham. We, we get that. Abraham did some cool things. He identifies himself as the God of Isaac. And he identifies himself as the God of Jacob, the scuzzball, right? <laughs> of all of the people that God could identify himself with Jacob that would not be on my list. if I was God's PR guy I would say no like that's not don't use this guy use somebody else there's lots of other qualified candidates to which you can attach your name to but God chooses to identify himself as the God of the snake of a man the God of the swindler the God of the scuzzball the God of the one who doesn't have any redeeming qualities about him and he chose like 
I was thinking about this too, like when you're picking teams when you were kids in school, right? Nobody wanted to be the last one picked. You know, you'd stand in the line and this captain would pick this person and this captain would pick that. You know, and nobody wanted to be the last one. God picked Jacob. And it wasn't because he was the last one. God picked this irredeemable snake of a man. God picked him. He chose him. And that fits into what we just read in Ephesians chapter 1. God had predestined Jacob for salvation from before the foundations of the earth. And he did so according to the praise of his glory and grace. I I can't fully wrap my mind around that. I'm up here trying to communicate this to you and I don't fully understand it. But this is who God is and this is what God has done. And as he's speaking to his disciples about why he's speaking to the crowds in parables, he just simply says it's for some to know and for some to not know. It's kind of, you know, if you know, you know, right? And if that's not harsh enough, in verse 12, back in Matthew 13, for to the one who has, more will be given. So if you know, you're, you're, you're in, To the one who has, and it's not given to him to know, even what he has will be taken away. That's harsh. And what's he talking about here? What, what is it that will be given, or what is it that will be taken away? Kind of the natural reading of this would lead us to think about maybe our earthly possessions, maybe, maybe wealth, maybe something like that. But, but I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. Right, we've got to think about the context of this. Immediately before the disciples asked this question about why Jesus speaks in parables, we, we heard a parable about how people respond to the hearing of the word, the different ways that people respond. And, and, and if we're breaking it down into math, which I, I don't think Jesus was getting at math, but maybe just to paint a picture, if we're looking at the math of the four different ways that people can respond, only 25% of respondents respond affirmatively to the word inappropriately, right? That, that paints a picture. Again, Jesus isn't doing math here, but this paints a picture for us. That it's not the majority that are going to respond affirmatively and appropriately to the word of God, right? It's the minority that's going to respond. And so when Jesus makes a statement for to the one who has, more will be given, what is it that the one has? I think if we're looking at the context properly, the thing that the one has is Christ. Has responded favorably to the preaching of the word. And so if that's true, then what is it that is the more that will be given? I think Jesus might be alluding to heaven here. To the one who has Christ, more will be given. And and if we were to continue on in Ephesians and get into Ephesians chapter 2, we're told that, that God will spend eternity pouring out His riches in kindness towards us in love through Christ Jesus. I think this is what Jesus is talking about here. The one who has taken the word and, and, and hidden it in their heart, the one who has, responded, has heard the word and responded to it, the, to the one who exhibits faith in Christ is going to receive an eternity full of riches that we can't even fathom. We can't fathom it. We're finite beings. We can't fathom infinity. We're not meant on this side of heaven to fathom infinity. It's so 
big and so massive and so just beyond anything that we can even fully understand. I think that's the more. So if that's true, then the one who doesn't have, what is it that they don't have? They don't have Christ. They don't have the word. They've, they've maybe heard, and we'll get into this more in a minute, they've maybe heard with their ears the word, but they've not heard in a way that, that they take it in and that they receive it. And so they don't have Christ. So even what they do have, and I think that part is, is alluding to the here and the now, right? Even what you do have to those who have not heard, even what they have will be taken from them. And so I think what Jesus is saying here is that to the one that doesn't have, enjoy what you have here and now because this is it. This is it. And eventually this, the here and the now, will be no more as we are ushered into eternity either in heaven or in hell. And Jesus isn't saying this explicitly. Again, he's speaking in a parable. And if, if you know, you know. But I think that's what he's getting at here. So why is it that he speaks in parables? He speaks in parables because he's sowing the seed that we talked about last week. And those who respond affirmatively to the word, they're, they're the one kind of seed. They're the minority and the kind of seed that, that roots go down and sprouts go up. And they grow, Right? So I don't think, because as I've approached this passage, I've kind of wondered why, why did he start off with a parable and then get into the purpose of the parables? Why didn't he start off with the purpose first and then get into it? Well, I, I think he was trying to show us something in this first parable that he talked about in the sower and the seeds. And so at the end of the day, it's meant for some to know and some will not know. We, we, we just know that this begs all kinds of... I'm sure you have questions floating around in your mind right now. This begs all kinds of questions as we think about this. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Right? Christ died for all, but, but we just know because this is not standing room only that all are not here right now. And if we think about all the churches everywhere, all the Christ-exalting, gospel-preaching churches everywhere, they're not full. Because not everybody has come to Christ, right? Christ died for all. Christ would desire that all come to him. But there are some that will and some that won't. In verse 13, Jesus gets into that. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. And I think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, his, his kind of scathing rebuke on humanity. Not only do we invent evil, but, but we suppress the truth, the Apostle Paul tells us. The Apostle Paul tells us that you can go around and look outside and you can, you can see proof that God exists by looking outside. Look around. And I've argued before, because of where we live, it's especially not hard in Central Oregon to look outside and see some existence, some proof that God exists. Right? We live in a beautiful place. You can look any, any direction and you see beauty. And to the person that's paying attention, you have to say there must be a God. You have to. 
But some people would say there is no God, and, and the Apostle Paul would argue that those people suppress the truth. They see, but they don't see. They hear, but they don't hear. And it's kind of a, a willing misunderstanding, right? It's not a misunderstanding because they're not smart enough to figure it out. It's kind of a refusal to understand. That the only apologetic or argument that we need for the existence of God is, is right outside. It's not the only thing we have, but, it, but that's enough to convince us of the existence of God. But the Apostle Paul says that, that we suppress, that we, we see the truth, we hear the truth, and our default as humans is to suppress the truth. And if you're like me, you know this about me because I talk about it a lot. I'm buried in the headlines all week, reading headlines, and, and, and I just shake my head. Like, I can't believe some of the things are going on in the world that are going on in the world today. And it seems like the trajectory at which we're declining, it, it's a pretty rapid pace these days. Right? Not that long ago, you know, I would think, gosh, I wonder what the world's going to be like in 50 years. Today, I wonder, like, what's the world going to be like in five years? at the pace that we're going, because we have a society of people that are suppressing the truth. They're willingly not coming to an understanding of the truth that's before them. They're willingly not understanding the truth that they can plainly see and that they can plainly hear. And as Christians, we can respond to that in a couple of different ways. We, we can respond by, by being mad at those people and being angry at those people. And I don't think God would have us do that. Because I think God's heart breaks for those people that suppress the truth. Christ died for truth suppressors. Christ died for the inventors of evil. Christ died for that. He gave his life in order that some would come to believe in Him and come to faith in Him. And again, all of this to the praise of His glory and grace because not a single one of us deserves it. Not a one of us. And then Jesus goes on to quote the prophet Isaiah in verse 14 of Matthew 13. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand... You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear, and, with, and their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, I would heal them. So we've got a little, little bit of bad news here. Strong language to say, you will indeed never understand. You will never perceive your hearing has grown dull and your eyes are closed. These are, again, a scathing rebuke from the prophet Isaiah. And this prophecy was spoken long before Jesus would quote it here. So, so we knew this was coming. There are some that are never going to come out of their suppression of the truth. Some that, that are so willing and have their heels so dug in to suppressing the truth that they're, they're never going to come to an understanding of what's plain before them. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 20, says this. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so it's kind of by God's design that he gave us this foolish message to preach. This foolish message that doesn't say that you're good enough. I've heard often over the years, pastors stand up in pulpits and say something along the lines that if you were the only one that ever existed, Christ would have died for you. And I don't believe that to be untrue necessarily, but it falls short of the gospel because Christ didn't die for you. He died for us. Right? Christ died for the church. Christ died for all those that would come to him and for anyone to think it's about you, that's foolish. It's not about you. God gave us this foolish message that Christ died for the Jacobs of the world, the scuzzball snakes of the world who seem irredeemable. Christ died so that those people could be redeemed. That's a foolish message, isn't it? And it's by God's design that he decided to do this seemingly foolish thing because we're told that, that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And, and this, Paul's not saying that God is foolish because he's not. He's, trying, he's using hyperbole to make a point. Like, if, if God were at all foolish, his, his foolishness is wiser than the best thing that we got to bring. It's better, right? The weakness of God, and again, God's not weak. This is hyperbole. God's weakness is stronger than the strongest thing that we can bring. And if that's not humbling enough, Paul goes on to say this, For consider your calling, brothers, or brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. In other words, Paul's saying, look around the room at a bunch of fools. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. We don't have a room full of somebodies here. Right? We have a room full of nobodies, and I hope that doesn't offend you. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is all God's business, who comes to him and who doesn't. It's above our pay grade, beyond us to figure out, beyond us to even judge. And it's God's design that he would do things in such a backwards way to us, so that at the end of the day, none of us can look and say, we did a thing. At the end of the day, we have to look and say, only God could save Jacob. I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't even have considered it. But God did, and he did a thing, and it's all him. I'm also reminded of what the psalmist writes in Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. So these truth suppressors that Paul talks about, the ones that Jesus talks about that see but don't see and hear but don't hear, the Bible calls those people foolish. 
that would say there is no God. They're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. No one. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man or any who understand, who seek after God, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So if it's not bad enough that we're sitting in a room full of fools and nobodies, we're also sitting in a room full of nobody, none of you are good. None of us are good in and of ourselves. None of us have any redeemable quality about us except that God would redeem us. The quality of redemption lies with him, not with us, to the praise of his glory and grace. And some of us, some of us are going to hear and actually hear and see and actually see. Some of us are going to hear and not hear, and some of us are going to see and not not really see because we're going to continue in our suppression of the truth. And so again, our, our reaction to foolish, weak, unwise, no good, nobodies, is not to point the finger and be mad at them, but that that we would be heartbroken for those that that willingly walk in untruth. Because you know what? That was me at one one point in my life. That was you at one point in your life. It may be you now at, at a point in your life. And God looks at what is irredeemable and says, you know what? I'm going to redeem that. I'm going to redeem the thing that doesn't seem redeemable at all. In verse 16 of Matthew 13, Jesus goes on to say, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And so we, we see God's sovereignty in election. We see human responsibility in the acceptance or suppression of the truth. And we see here God's unmerited grace directed towards those that hear and actually hear and who have seen and actually see. And the Bible says, Jesus himself says, that we are blessed, those who have seen and those who have heard, those who have come from suppressing the truth to accepting what's plain. But there's a blessing in that, and he reminds us that, that the prophets of old longed to see what we see. And it's not that the prophets of old didn't have truth, but they, they, didn't have, they looked forward to Christ. They looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, and we on this side of the cross, we, we look back confidently trusting that the Messiah has come. Confidently trusting that the Messiah has conquered death and redeemed sin. We, we believe that. The people on the other side of the cross looked forward to it, trusting that it would happen one day. We, we are privileged to look back knowing that it did happen. Right? It's not just a hope that we have out in front of us somewhere, but it's something that's behind us in a sense that we can look back upon and say, God did a thing at the cross. And because he did a thing at the cross, we can trust his words that Jesus said when he said, I'm, I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. And then in my father's house are many mansions. We can trust the word that says that, that he will spend eternity pouring out his riches in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We can trust his words that say, by grace, you've been saved. 
by unmerited favor, not because of anything that we've done or anything that we deserve. I told you we're going to jump around a little bit. We're going to jump down to verse 34. Verse 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And again, that that might be a little bit of hyperbole. Jesus said some pretty plain things, especially when he was talking to the Pharisees. He spoke pretty plainly. But but he spoke to the people uh, in parables, and this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And one of those prophets of old said, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. There is a sense in which the gospel is hidden. Not, not that we have to go look very hard for it, but, but again, there's people that see that don't see, that hear that don't hear. I had a point in my life where I saw but didn't see and, and heard but didn't hear, and that's true of you too. But it was prophesied that the Messiah would utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And what is it that's been hidden since the foundation of the world? If we go all the way back to the garden, all the way back to Genesis when God created, we, we see the human propensity right out of the gate to sin. Right? It, it took no time for humans to rebel against God, for the creation to rebel against the creator. It took like four seconds. Right? And, and, and we rebelled because it's our human nature. And you and I have inherited that nature from Adam. And like it just ran its way through humanity and the rebellion is stronger and stronger as time goes on. So, so we see the human propensity for rebellion and for sin right from the beginning. But we also see from the beginning God's plan of redemption in Genesis chapter 3. Right, the serpent will strike the heel, but the heel of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Right, that, that's, we don't have time to get into that today either, but that, that's the prophecy of Jesus. So from, from the beginning, Jesus is now revealed. The Messiah had been concealed from, from that moment in history in a sense, not fully concealed, that prophecies after prophecy after prophecy would say that Messiah would come. Messiah will redeem. But until the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that Messiah was concealed. And again, on this side of the cross, we can look back and we can confidently say, Messiah came. The Word became flesh. He dwelt among us. And we've seen His glory He's no longer concealed like he was prior to the incarnation. The writer of Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance, speaking of Jesus, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. So, so we're told that, that like there, there was a time the writer of Hebrews would, would get behind this prophecy that says that, that what's hidden since the foundation of the world, has now been made known in these last days. Since the incarnation, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory. The Messiah is no longer concealed, and He came to do business. 
And he gave his life and he died for all of those that would come to faith in him. He died for the church. He died for the sins of the world. Right? Sufficient for all was the death of Christ. Effectual for those that would come to him. Right? And he died for the church. And after he did this, we're told by the writer of Hebrews that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, took his rightful place in heaven. And his name is the greatest name, greater than any of the angels, greater than anything else in all of creation is the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. So as we come back full circle, why, why did Jesus speak in parables? Jesus spoke in parables so that we would know who understands to some extent and who, who, who believes and who doesn't believe. If you're here today and you're, you're believing this, it's because God has opened your eyes to believe it. It's because he's opened your ears to believe it. He's given you the understanding. Right, the writer, uh, Apostle Paul in Corinthians, tells us the God of this age, the devil, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. He's blinded those who are blind. And it's God who gives sight to the blind, right? Once was blind, but now I see. The words to that song, like that, that's our story. <laughs> once was lost, but now I'm found. And once was blind, but now I see. And that's God's work. That's not my work. That's not me or you coming to a place in our life where it's like, okay, I get this now. This is God's redemptive work in, in a snake of a people redeeming the irredeemable because that's what God does. And so as we think about the why behind the parables, as we're about to go through a whole slew of parables, understand that that this is God speaking to humanity, a holy God speaking to a sinful humanity, trying to drive a point home to come to him to repent and to believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. That, That was Jesus' biggest message. And yet he's spoken parables not because he's trying to make it more difficult, not because he's trying to put an obstacle in our way, but those who are meant to understand will understand. And it's not our job to sort out who understands and who doesn't. It's our job. I kind of think of it this way. Have you ever had the mailman come and knock on your door and say, here's the mail. You might want to open this. This end of this one looks time sensitive. Open it. Man, he just every day puts the mail in your box. Like he delivers it every day, right? That, that's our job as Christians, to deliver the message every day. God will sort out who believes and who doesn't believe. But he's all given us a job as the postmen, postwomen of Christianity, that we, like we deliver the message faithfully. God will sort out who believes. God will sort out who sees, who hears, who understands. God will redeem who he's going to redeem. And he'll do so to the praise of his glorious grace. And we've got to remember that. So be encouraged as we get into the parables that God is going to continue uh, to speak to us. Be thankful that God has redeemed you. You who have been redeemed are blessed according to Jesus. We have something today that the prophets of old didn't have living on this side of the cross. And we can be thankful for that. God, this morning we are indeed thankful. Thankful that you love us. Thankful that you care for us enough. Thankful that you uh, would redeem a bunch of foolish, weak uh, people. 
stubborn and rebellious people, that you uh, would love us enough to die for us, that you would love us enough uh, to change those things about us. And so God, help us um, in our redemption to be people who long to see other stubborn, weak, foolish, blind, deaf people to become redeemed also. And so God, help us to faithfully uh, deliver your message, not, not just here on Sunday mornings and what we preach and what we sing, but as we uh, go out into the community, go out into our little corners of the world day in and day out, help us to be people uh, that long to see the redemption of other uh, foolish, weak people uh, that are in need of it. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.